All right, everyone, welcome to episode 56 of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host, and I'm also the founder of Novus Mindful Life Institute Family Counseling and Recovery in Long Beach, California. If you or anyone you know is struggling with addiction or any of life's challenges, please reach out to us. We can definitely help. You can find more information about us at theaddictedmind.com forward slash help. If you're enjoying The Addicted Mind, please rate and review us in iTunes. That really does help get us a lot of exposure. I think we're almost up to 100 reviews. Pretty amazing. I didn't even think that many people would listen to the podcast. And to get almost to 100 reviews blows me away. So if you're enjoying The Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes. That really does help and I really appreciate it. And it lets me know that people are getting a lot out of this podcast. So thank you so much for doing that. Also, if you're interested to further the discussion, we have the Addicted Mind Podcast Facebook group. Just go into Facebook, search the Addicted Mind Podcast, and we'll come up. Click and join. We have a lot of discussion and uh, going on in there about addiction and addiction treatment and what's going on. So if you're interested in that, please go and find us on Facebook. Okay, our guest today is Peter Grinspoon, and he is going to talk about medical cannabis and how it can help prevent addiction and uh, especially opioid addiction for uh, chronic pain and issues like that and also how it may be helpful in the treatment of addiction as well so it's a wonderful discussion he is in recovery himself from an opioid addiction so he definitely understands it and shares a little bit of his story about how he got recovery and and was able to overcome that and how he now supports other doctors who are struggling with uh, addiction, and he's a real advocate for that. So let's get this episode started, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Once again, the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 56. All right, everyone, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. Today, my guest is Peter Grinspoon, and he is going to talk about opioid addiction and also medical cannabis. Peter, you want to introduce yourself and uh, tell us a little bit about you and how you kind of, the story you have? I am a primary care doctor at Mass General Hospital in Boston. I am 11 years in recovery from opiate addiction. It's not unusual that I'm a doctor who has suffered from addiction to drugs and alcohol. What's unusual about me is I actually wrote a memoir about it. My memoir is called Free Refills, A Doctor Confronts His Addiction. I decided to write an email to help get this taboo subject out of the shadows because one of the problems is when doctors, nurses, dentists, healthcare providers, or really anybody tries to get help for addiction, they end up getting in trouble instead of getting sympathetic treatment. This is particularly true with doctors. So I have worked a lot with physicians and I'm trying to change the climate so that when people find themselves in trouble with drugs or alcohol or depression or bipolar or anxiety, they actually can ask for help and get sympathetic, helpful treatment without getting in trouble with the medical board. So I work on that. I'm also a medical cannabis specialist. 
I've been interested in medical cannabis my entire life. My father is the grandfather of medical marijuana. He wrote a book on it in 1971 uh, called Marijuana Reconsidered that was reviewed on the front page of the New York Times book review that was basically pro-medical cannabis, which got the ball rolling. And I had a brother when I was eight years old who died of leukemia, unfortunately, and the only thing that enabled him to maintain his weight and food down during his chemotherapy was medical cannabis. This was 40 years ago, 45 years ago. So I had actual factual evidence that medical cannabis can save lives and alleviate suffering in my family for decades ago. So I've always been a believer in medical cannabis. So having been addicted to opiates and being a lifelong believer in medical cannabis, a natural interest of mine would be getting people off opiates or not on opiates in the first place using medical cannabis. Okay. I mean, wow, what a, that is a whole bunch at one moment and a lot. Can you share a little bit about your addiction? And, we'll, and then we'll get into, because I definitely want to talk about medical cannabis and treating opioid addiction and, and how that can work together. But can you share a little bit of your story about how your addiction kind of manifested itself and how you kind of got help? Well, in medical school, we were going through some samples and there was a package called Vicodin and I didn't really know what it was. And we looked it up and it said, warning causes euphoria and a false sense of well-being. So we said, of course, we've got to try this. My friend tried it, had a good time and never wanted to try it again. I tried the Vicodin and I was, which is hydrocodone. And I was so euphoric, I spent the next 10 years of my life trying to recreate that high. I was in medical school at that point, and my addiction slowly progressed from taking it sporadically to taking it daily, to needing to taking it daily, to getting very sick if I didn't take it daily. And my drug seeking became more and more aggressive. When you're a physician, you have tons of stress, burnout, stress, you're making these life or death decisions you're not getting enough sleep, and you have unlimited access to medications with samples, prescriptions, patients bring in their bottles, professional courtesy. It's infinite. That's why we called the book, my memoir, Free Refills. Doctors have free refills to medications. And if you mix the extremely high stress with the culture of doctor, heal thyself, with the fact that doctors are afraid to get help for any problems, and the unlimited access to prescription medications, it's a perfect storm for doctors and addiction, which is why so many of us get addicted. My drug seeking got so out of control that I ended up doing these crazy things that didn't seem crazy to me at the time because I was addicted. And addiction takes over your brain and makes you uh, focus more on short-term benefit than long-term consequences. I ended up writing a prescription for a nanny who had long since left the country. It didn't take long for the pharmacist to figure out that I wasn't a 19-year-old woman from New Zealand. I should have gotten a starring role on the show America's Dumbest Criminal. Instead, I got the state police and the DEA raiding my office in February of 2005. That led to a long sequence of events. Uh, I was charged with three felonies. I was sent to a faith-based 12-step rehab program for 90 days while I'm a Jewish atheist from the Northeast, so that didn't go that well. I was drug tested for five years, and eventually, after three and a half years and a bunch of relapses, 
I was finally able to regain my medical license. How did you find that final sobriety? What was that turning point for you that said, okay, this is it? I mean, I've, I've done all these rehabs, I've done all this stuff, and you said, okay, I'm, I'm ready. You know, it's a complicated thing. I, most of it was my kids. I wanted to be there for them. I was in a divorce. The addiction kept getting clubbed over my head, and I wanted to be clean and sober for my kids. But also, I wanted to be a doctor again. I love being a primary care doctor. Don't ask me why, because it's very stressful and it gets harder every year. But I really love helping people and being a primary care doctor. Doctors tend to do well in recovery for several reasons. One, there's a lot of leverage. If you flunk your drug test, you don't get to be a doctor. And two, these physician health programs follow you for three, five, seven years. And I think the long-term follow-up is really critical. It's a chronic disease and they follow you. I wish we had this kind of leverage and this kind of follow-up for the patients I take care of in my outpatient primary care clinic. So I think it was just wanting to be there for my kids, wanting to be there for my patients and having the support. And finally, the fact that nobody gave up on me, my twin brother, my older brother, my cousins, my friends, and my family, nobody gave up on me. And I think the fact that no matter how selfish, obnoxious, self-destructive, or just plain idiotic my behavior was, nobody gave up on me. And I think all those factors together helped me pull it together. So you were really able to get that support you had to those consequences looming over you. But then it sounds like you also really had that support network that with you through this process of getting clean, getting sober, getting the addiction under control. Absolutely. And I think that most dangerous time is early recovery. Not only is your brain still keyed very much to taking the drugs, your, all of your emotional relationships are with the drug, not with other people. So you're very lonely and you're confronting the shambles you've made of your life. You, people are dealing with divorces and financial problems. In my case, I didn't have a medical license. I was just sitting around. I was undergoing this ugly divorce. So I think early recovery is like the hardest time. And they give you these platitudes, which actually are true, but they're hard to believe at the time that the promises and bring your mind, your body and your mind will follow and just put one foot in front of the other. And as my mentor from physician health program told me, if you just stop doing drugs, everything will work out. And in fact, I stopped doing drugs and everything worked out, but it's so hard to believe that at the time when everything is crumbling around you. So I think early recovery is an area we all need to pay more attention to. Definitely. And, and when you have all of that crumbling around you, you definitely want to have a place to escape to. And drugs or certain behaviors or whatever it is help you do that quickly. No, absolutely. And your brain has changed. You know, they say that, uh, you know, the reward center gets hijacked. Uh, they say a good meal gives you 50 units of dopamine. Sex gives you 100 units of dopamine. I guess it sort of depends who you're having sex with and what the circumstances are, but roughly, I'm joking, but roughly 100 <laughs> units. And opiates give you 1,000 units of dopamine. So when you stop doing drugs, your brain isn't reset yet. So I think like a good meal gives you far less because you're used to 1,000. So you don't get the same joy from a conversation with a friend one month after you stopped opiates as I do now, 11 years, now that my brain is re-regulated and is back to normal. So I just don't think the rewards are there. So you're just sitting there in this sort of depressed, bored funk dealing with all these negative consequences that you've 
brought upon yourself. It's a really difficult time. And I think that's why a lot of people relapse. It's not just the physical pull of the drug. You're like lonely and you're not getting any rewards or the same rewards you'd ordinarily get from all of these normal activities that ordinarily would give you rewards. Very dangerous time. Definitely. And in treating addiction, I see that over and over again. And it's such a struggle, especially in that early time, to really get them all that support that they need to kind of walk through it. So I definitely understand that. And so let's kind of transition a little bit to talking about the medical cannabis treatment for opioid addiction or what that means or what that looks like. Absolutely. There are a whole variety of ways in which medical cannabis can help alleviate the opiate epidemic. First of all, I use it a lot in clinic to prevent people from being on opiates in the first place. 20 years ago, for many conditions, and this is partially the doctor's fault, largely the pharmaceutical industry's fault, but we were sort of sold a bill of goods to use Oxycontin for backache, carpal tunnel syndrome, your knee hurts, you have a headache. We don't do that anymore, but we have so many patients Well, good doctors don't do that anymore. There's still some doctors that do it. But we have so many patients now that are stuck on opiates, and it's really tragic because opiates are just not great medications for chronic pain. They have a lot of side effects, and they're not even that effective. So I start very few people on opiates now. I start most of my chronic pain patients on cannabis. So number one, there are going to be fewer people addicted in the future because we're starting fewer people on opiates. Number two, the negative consequences of using opiates has to do with the dose. With a lower dose, you're less likely to overdose or to get addicted, actually. So they've shown that people who use cannabis and opiates together can reduce their dose of opiates up to 80%. So I have people on lower doses of opiates, and that's really huge. It improves their quality of life because they have many fewer side effects from the lower dose of opiates, and cannabis has a very benign side effect profile, and they're less likely to overdose. So we're reducing the dose of the opiates. Number three, I'm transitioning people off of the opiates who want to be off the opiates. I don't believe in forced tapering of people on opiates. I think that's unethical, but a lot of people don't want to be on opiates. It stinks to be on opiates these days. You're treated like a criminal. You have to go in every month. You have to get drug tests. Even if you're like a little old lady, you have to sign a narcotics contract. You're literally treated like a criminal. So a lot of people due to side effects or due to just not wanting to be treated like a convict, don't want to be on opiates. Number four, cannabis is very good for opiate withdrawal. And a lot of people use it. The pharmaceutical medications, clonidine and this new fancy expensive clonidine that doesn't do anything better than clonidine, I forget what it's called, they don't work as well as cannabis. And it's shown that there's a study, people test for cannabis and then kick you off suboxone or methadone if you test positive for cannabis. But studies have shown out that people who are on, for example, suboxone, which is also called buprenorphine, which is medication-assisted treatment, don't do any worse if they're on cannabis. And there's no reason to even test for it, let alone kick people off. So I think it helps people with withdrawal symptoms. And then the fifth thing, which I don't do yet, is there are so many anecdotal stories of people using cannabis as medication-assisted treatment instead of methadone or buprenorphine. Now, I don't use that yet because there's not evidence for it. If someone wants to try cannabis for a headache, I'm happy to try it because if the treatment fails, what happens is they get a headache, not the end of the world. But for opiate 
use disorder, if someone wants to try to get off heroin or fentanyl and the treatment fails, they could overdose and die. So I'm not about to try just cannabis for that when we know that buprenorphine, suboxone, or methadone cut overdose and death by 80%. So I don't think the data is quite there for that particular use, even though thousands of people swear by it and there's good anecdotal evidence. So for that fifth use, directly getting people off opiates using cannabis, a lot of people are using that. And I'm just not quite prepared to do that myself until there's actual data. Um, so the research still needs to, they'd still need more research. So as, as far as, I mean, it makes a lot of sense instead of using cannabis, instead of using an opioid for chronic pain. I mean, that sounds pretty reasonable, but it sounds like this treatment when someone is already addicted to an opioid, we're still figuring out if cannabis is a, is a safe way to do that. Exactly. And just to talk about chronic pain for a second, they say between 50 and 100 million Americans are in chronic pain. We're getting older, we're aging, we're getting arthritic. We used to live till 20 or 30 and something used to hit us in the head or eat us or something. Now we're all living to 70, 80 or 90. We're in some ways a victim of our own success of modern medicine, keeping people alive. And our body wasn't really designed to live that long. And 75% of Americans are overweight. We're all getting arthritis as we get into our 60s, 70s, and 80s. That's why so many people have chronic pain. And what do you do for chronic pain? Nobody wants to be on opiates. And all the doctors are afraid to prescribe opiates because the DEA is torturing them and threatening them. Tylenol doesn't do anything. And then the non-steroidals, your Advil, Naperson, Ibuprofen, Aleve, they eat away your kidneys if they don't give you an ulcer first. I see so many people in their 70s or 60s who have been taking them. You can get away with it for four or five years but after that, you're just going to kill your kidneys. Cannabis is the obvious choice for chronic pain. If you take the right strain, you take the right dose, you don't even necessarily get very high. If you get a CBD dose, you don't even have to smoke it. You could take a tincture under your tongue. The people who are adopting medical cannabis the most are the baby boomers because they want something safe and effective for chronic pain, which isn't going to destroy their kidneys. So it's just a no-brainer for chronic pain, if you ask me. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like, you know, when you're talking about, I think a lot of people think of when they think of cannabis and, and use, they're kind of thinking of the person smoking out but and getting high and everything. But what you're saying is sometimes you can even treat pain and it's not necessarily you're getting high. Can you talk about that a little bit? Right. Well, first of all, there's a hundred or so chemicals in whole plant marijuana. And over time, now that they're starting to actually be able to do research on it here, uh, they'll be able to do more research once the government gets it out of stage one in the Controlled Substances Act. Right now, it's categorized with heroin and methamphetamine, and co um, which says it has high abuse liability and no medical value. That has to change, and it will change soon. So it's hard to do research in this country. There's tons of research being done in Israel, Canada, and Europe. But there are 100 or so cannabinoids in cannabis. THC, the one that gets you high, is one. Another that a lot of people have heard about is CBD. CBD you can use for sleep, for anxiety, and for pain. It does not get you high at all. Uh, so a lot of people are using CBD, and that has very few, if any, side effects, and it's helping a lot of people, again, with sleep, anxiety, and pain. For pain that's more severe, using the THC is stronger, but then again, that can get you high which again, some people love, some people don't mind, and some people hate. 
but by manipulating the levels of CBD and THC and by using the proper dosing, you could really minimize the high that you're getting and maximizing the pain control. We're just at the beginning of this whole era of cannabis medicine. In Israel, they're breeding strains that are higher in CBD and lower in THC. So you can use your vaporizer. You know, doctors don't like people to smoke things, but you could use your vaporizer, which is a lot safer, or again, a couple drops under your tongue. And, you know, you, you won't get very high at all. You won't be impaired. And it's much better for chronic pain than, than the opiates. And it's as good for chronic pain is a non-steroidals, except you're not going to end up on dialysis. Right, right. And hopefully not end up uh, addicted in that in, with an opioid that is destroying your life. Exactly. Your life and your quality of life. What do you say to in, I think it's it's changing a little bit in the in the drug treatment community now, but kind of that zero tolerance that uh, you can't, if you're in recovery, you can't use any drug. Well, I think that's, people who have suffered from stigma have now internalized stigma and are using stigma against our own. They're using stigma against our own brothers and sisters in recovery. And it really saddens me because the most effective treatment for opiate addiction is, is medication-assisted treatment. It has between a 50 and 80% drop in overdose and death. And it's the state-of-the-art treatment. We look at it like insulin for diabetics. And it makes me so sad when people go into a Narcotics Anonymous meeting and the people say, oh, you're not really in recovery because you're on Suboxone or you're not really in recovery because you're in Methadone. From a doctor's point of view, you're not only are you in recovery if you're on Suboxone, you're on the safest and most cutting edge level of recovery. Suboxone doesn't get you high if you're using it appropriately. And that kind of stigma is killing people. And to the extent that the rehab industry has been so slow to adopt anything scientific, including medication-assisted treatment, I think the rehab industry is making itself irrelevant. They are getting a reputation for being sort of predatory and taking people's money, and they don't put people on medication-assisted treatment, by and large, a few of them are starting to, and they even take people off their medication. And it's actually increasing people's chance of death. And I think these 12-step programs that are doing that are running the risk of making themselves completely irrelevant because I'm not anti-12-step. 12-steps have helped a lot of my friends. But in reality, there's not very good evidence for 12-steps. And there's phenomenal evidence for medication-assisted treatment. So why is the group that doesn't have any evidence standing behind it harassing the group of people that actually have a lot of evidence behind its efficacy? It doesn't make any sense. Right. And um, yeah, when you see that the research is really pouring into this addiction treatment, I mean, we're beginning to see things that, that work, that really can help people with this really devastating thing. I mean, there's some concern that if you send someone to a 28-day rehab and they either don't offer you Suboxone or they take you off your Suboxone, you don't use opiates for those 20 days because you're stuck in rehab getting drug tests. Then you go out, you lose your tolerance, and you could overdose and die. It actually can increase your risk of death because they are discouraging you and not providing you medication-assisted treatment, and they're just keeping you from using so that you lose your tolerance. So it's actually thought by theorized by some people that some of these rehabs are actually increasing your risk of death because they're so 
anti-scientific. Right. And I think that comes uh, with a lot of history. I mean, I think addiction wasn't, uh, for a long time, wasn't even addressed uh, medically until what, the last, what, 15, 20 years, 30 years? No, absolutely. And I wrote a recent piece for this for Harvard Health Publications. And I talked about how the big book in Alcoholics Anonymous was started in 1935. And since then, we have a whole field of addiction medicine. We have MRIs. We have neurochemistry. We understand the brain. We understand neuropsychology. And we can't just keep holding on to the same statements and platitudes that were developed almost 100 years ago. We've got to evolve uh, what we're doing. And certainly, we can't stigmatize people that are taking advantage of modern medical treatment. I, I just think that's wrong. No, I would agree with you. I mean, I think we have to look at the research. We have to look at what actually works and we've got to continue to do this. And especially, you know, I just uh, read an article today, another uh, famous person just OD'd on opioids and or fentanyl. And it's just, it's tragic to watch this happen. And preventable. Yeah, and preventable. And um, hopefully as information gets out there, we can get more and more treatment that works, that helps people take down the stigma, reach out to people who need the support. And I think there's still a lot of, still based around a lot of this concept of willpower and addiction and, and that we have to understand this is, this is bigger than anybody's willpower. This is about the brain being hijacked, the reward center of the, of the brain being hijacked. And I think we have to be able to support people in that. Absolutely. I don't know if you're in recovery or not, but someone who's been addicted, it takes over the part of your brain that sort of controls your willpower. So you have willpower, but your willpower is sort of conscripted into the service of drug seeking. So I had tons of willpower. I'm a doctor. I made it through medical school, but my willpower was harnessed on the side of doing the wrong thing. Not, I mean, part of it was like, I kept saying to myself, I'm never going to do this again. I've got to stop and doing the wrong thing. And I kept flushing the pills. But another, an equally motivated part of me, if not more motivated, the willpower was always had my drug radar on and was seeking for other ways to score drugs. So you do have willpower, but it's not necessarily doing the right thing. Right, right. It's kind of like hijacked and it's people who struggle with addiction. It's a war between two sides of themselves all the time. And, and uh, it's exhausting and tiring. And uh, they definitely need all the support they can get. Absolutely. You know, and it's complicated. I'm not a big believer in forced treatment because people aren't bought into it. If you force them, compel, compel them into treatment. And there's a big argument about it being unethical to compel people into treatment. But I was pretty much compelled into treatment. And I'm just not sure if I would have made it if I weren't personally compelled into treatment. I would have had criminal charges, felonies. I could have gone to prison if I didn't go through the physician health service program. And I also wouldn't have ever gotten my medical license back. And so I'm in this funny situation where I'm sort of philosophically against compelling people to go into treatment. But I myself feel like if I weren't compelled into treatment, I probably wouldn't have gotten better. Right. And I think, you know, this is so unique to each individual. And one thing that works for one person doesn't necessarily work for another person. And that's why we have to have a lot of different ways to help people and support people as they figure it out and work through it. Right. And if it works, it works. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, I, you know, Peter, thank you so much for coming on. What would you like to add or what would you like to say to anybody out there? 
Well, one of the hardest things is when you have an addicted family member, friend, or loved one, and they're totally out of control. And I'm totally not an advocate of the tough love philosophy. I think that has to be completely thrown away because these days with all the heroin tainted with fentanyl, if you give someone a tough love approach and they go out, they could use once and they could die and you'll never see them again. So I think tough love's got to go out the window. You know, you obviously have to protect yourself if they're stealing from you or if they're threatening. But I think the most important thing is to remember that no matter how gone they seem or how distant they seem, they're still in there. And when at the height of my addiction, I still felt and appreciated the love and caring that everybody around me was sending me. So don't give up on people and remember that they're still in there and just keep loving and supporting them. And hopefully with good treatment, they'll come back. But please don't give up on people. That's the one thing I wanted to say. Oh, thank you so much for saying that, Peter. And thank you for you know sharing your wisdom uh, on the addicted mind. I really appreciate it. And I think it's uh, going to help a lot of people. If people want to know more about oh, you. Sure. My book can be found on Amazon. It's called Free Refills, A Doctor Confronts His Addiction. And you could know tons about me by reading that. And also, if you want to contact me, my website is just petergrinspoon.com. It's grin like smile, spoon like fork, just like my name. So petergrinspoon.com, there's a contact me uh, button and I get right back to people and I'm happy to answer questions if this conversation engendered any interesting questions. Oh, thank you so much. And I'll also uh, link that on the website as well so people can find that on theaddictedmind.com. Thank you so much, Peter. Really nice talking to you. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. All the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 56. I'll also have a link to his book on Amazon. And if you're interested in getting it, please purchase it through that link that helps support the Addicted Mind podcast. And I really appreciate it. So with that, have a wonderful day and I will talk to you next week. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how twos for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.